This is the podcast for RUF at the University of Texas. A community for students to experience God's grace and express God's grace to others. For more information, visit www.ruf.org slash UT. Or find us on Instagram at TexasRUF. Welcome to RUF. Um, great to see all of you. Last week before spring break. Uh, if, I, if we've never met before, my name is Jordan, and I'm the RUF campus minister here at UT. And I want to welcome you tonight to RUF. Let me tell you just for a second what RUF is, okay? So RUF is a community of students. We're trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbors, because what we believe is that Jesus is love. And so each and every week, this is what we do. Uh, we meet in this room on Wednesday nights, and we meet in small groups throughout the week and one-on-one for lunch or for coffee in order to remind one another of God's love, in order that we might rest in his love. And so what I want you to do this and every Wednesday night is to rest and to breathe in and out God's love for you, knowing that RUF is not a community that's trying to get you to do more things, but actually to rest in the things that Jesus has done for you. So I want you to know that no matter who you are or what you've done or what you believe, you really are welcome here. And uh, this, this semester, if you've been with us, you'll know that we're looking at here, looking at the book of Genesis. And Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And so we're calling this series God's First Words. These are, these are God's first words to us about who he is, about why we're here, and about what our purpose is in the first place. And Genesis is season one, episode one, and tonight we're going to look at the Bible's first words on sin. So let me read this passage for us together. It's printed in your bulletin. This is from Genesis 2 and 3. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. These are God's words to us. They're absolutely true, and they're written to us because he loved us. Let's pray real quick. Father, thank you so much for your word. Um, we hear a lot of voices throughout our weeks, uh, in our heads. We hear a lot of voices, we hear a lot of voices from the world, and we would rather listen to your voice. And so thank you for speaking to us tonight. Uh, speak to us in your son's name. Amen. So uh, this past Saturday, Emily and I took the kids out to dinner, and then we came home at about 8.15, and Emily said, I'm going to bed. And so I said, I'm going to see Batman. 
Alright, and so I went and saw Batman by myself, and it was awesome. And if you're not, if you like haven't ever gone to a movie by yourself before, you should really try it. It's really fun. Um, I got the little like kids pack, which is a total hack because especially when you're by yourself, like you don't need to buy $12 popcorn and eat all of it and like have a stomachache after. So you just get like your little like kids popcorn and like little fruit snacks and like a little drink. And it was great. Okay. And um, some of you may know that I um, love Batman. Like I'm kind of obsessed with Batman. I think he's the best superhero and I don't really think it's close. And the reason that Batman is the best superhero is because Batman has the best villains, okay? Like, far and away, best cast of villains is Batman. I mean, think about it. Uh, in Batman, you have the Joker, you have the Scarecrow, you have the Penguin, you have the Riddler, you have Bane. Some of these names mean nothing to you. But um, again, without these villains, there is no Batman. The villains make Batman. And in the Bible, the same is true with sin. Without sin, Christianity makes zero sense. Without sin, the Bible really doesn't make any sense. Uh, without sin, there's, you can make no sense of why Jesus came into the world or why he had to die or why the cross or the empty tomb or any of that makes any sense. It makes no sense apart from sin. And so tonight, we need to talk about sin. And especially if you've been a Christian for a long time, you have heard this passage a hundred times. And you will be tempted to tune out. But I want you to tune in because I really believe that most of us have a pretty weak and sort of benign understanding of sin. Because when we think about sin, we think about sin as merely a bad decision or a bad choice. Like, that's what we think sin is. Sin is a bad decision. Sin is, uh, is, is cheating on a test, or it's, or it's cheating on a boyfriend or girlfriend, or it's lying to your parents, or it's drinking too much. And we think, that's sin. I made a bad decision. But sin is way more than that. It is way more than a bad choice or a bad decision. And so here's our definition of sin for tonight, and we're going to walk through it. Sin is an invasive power that always lies and makes me live for myself and not for God. We're just going to repeat that over and over again tonight. Sin is an invasive power that always lies and makes me live for myself and not for God. So first, sin is an invasive power. Okay, so uh, for a couple of weeks now, we have all been talking about one thing, and that one thing has been Russia and their invasion of Ukraine, right? And one of the things that has made this war like incredibly disturbing is the fact that there's really zero reason or rationale for it. Uh, I mean, Ukraine was a peaceful country and minding its own business and was absolutely zero threat to Russia. And then Putin just decided one day, I'm going to invade. And if you look back at our passage tonight, actually something really similar happens in our passage. I mean, think about it. For five weeks of large group now, we have been moving through Genesis at a pretty slow pace, right? I mean, you may have noticed this, that for like five or six weeks, we only made it through two chapters. And that's because in the first two chapters of Genesis, there is so much good and peace 
I mean, I mean, we looked at this, this good, majestic world God has made, the beauty of creation and human beings and, and marriage and sex and work and rest. And every time God says, good, 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 very good, good, good. And then suddenly tonight, out of nowhere, we get this word, serpent. I mean, look at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. I mean, notice, we get absolutely zero introduction to this character. The Bible offers no explanation of who the serpent is or where he came from. He just all of a sudden appears. Like, we're supposed to know who the serpent is. Now the serpent. And I believe that the serpent just appears out of nowhere. Because the Bible wants us to feel how out of place and absurd sin is. That sin actually has zero reason to be in our world. It, it, it does not belong here. Its presence is absurd and out of place. And it does, like The serpent does not belong in our passage any more than Russia belongs in Ukraine right now. That's how out of place and absurd it is. And yet here it is. But what we see tonight is that like Russia, sin is extremely powerful. And when it goes to war, you can't stop it. See, as long as we have a weak view of sin, and as long as we see sin merely as a bad choice or a bad decision, here's what will happen. We will always underestimate it, and we will never realize how powerful it is. And we will think, if sin is just a bad decision, then here's how I fight it. I just try to do better next time, and I try to make a better decision next time. But I want us to see how powerful sin is and also to see how invasive it is. And again, that it doesn't belong in our world. And so when sin shows up in our lives, like we should feel alarmed by it. It should feel out of place and abnormal. And yet for so many of us, we sort of cozy up to our sins. We get to this place where they just feel pretty normal and they don't feel out of place at all. And when that's the case, when we sort of become desensitized to sin, like we have lost and sin has us in its grips. And so the first thing I want us to see again is that sin is an invasive power. It has no reason to be in the text tonight, and yet there it is. It has invaded God's good world. Sin is an invasive power that always lies, and it makes me live for myself and not for God. So let's look at the second part. Sin always lies. It always lies. So, um, how many of you have ever seen this movie, Catch Me If You Can? Did you ever see this movie with Leonardo DiCaprio? All the dudes in the back. Love it. Uh, a few girls. Okay, and I see you. Uh, Andrea, thank you. So, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, so hot right now. Uh, he plays this Frank Abnaley is this guy's name. Um, and he's a con artist. That's the movie. And, but what's amazing about Frank Abnaley is that... Um, most con artists, they basically just have, like, one con that they do over and over again, and, like, that's how they make their money. But this Frank Amnally guy, who was actually a real man, what was amazing about him as a con artist is that he was able to pull off all these different sorts of cons. And if you've seen the movie, this is what Leonardo DiCaprio does. I mean, at one point in the movie, he poses as a pilot for Pan Am. And then later in the movie, he's a doctor. And later in the movie, he's a lawyer and actually passes the Louisiana State Bar exam. But like over and over again, he's posing as all of these different things. 
But every one of them, no matter what form he takes, is a lie. And that's the thing with sin. Sin can take any number of forms. And we could come up with a list of tonight of 200 sins. But all of them, at their root, are the same. They're each a lie. So what I want to do now is go through this conversation between Eve and the serpent that's really familiar to many of you. And I want us to ask, as the serpent tells all of these little lies to Eve, what is the one big lie that he's telling? All the little lies, what is the one big lie that they tell collectively? So let's look at verse 1. First words out of the serpent's mouth, here's what he says to Eve. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This is a lie. Because look back at the very beginning of your printed verses. Look back at verses two, chapter 2, 15 through 17. We see there that God actually said something very different to Adam and Eve. He said, you may surely eat of any tree in the garden, but just of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. But the key word that the serpent says here to Eve is actually. Did God actually say? Because with that word, Satan is making Eve doubt God's goodness. He is making God appear strict and sort of like harsh and withholding. Did he actually say you can't do that? It would be sort of like this. Um, it would be like one of your friends saying to you, did your parents actually say you can't go to Cabo with us over spring break? When your parents really said, you can go to Cabo, I'll pay for the whole trip, just don't leave the resort because Cabo's kind of dangerous, right? I mean, like that's the idea. Again, um, it, Satan is exaggerating sort of the strictness of God and making appear as God is like the strict and withholding parent when actually he's extremely generous. And we've seen her response here that Eve totally takes the bait. Because look at what she says in verse 3. Eve, this is fascinating, she exaggerates God's original command. She says to the serpent, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. So she's correcting the serpent. But then she adds, neither shall you touch it. Did God ever say anything about touching the tree? No. But she's exaggerated. She's taking the bait. She is now seeing and imagining God as a strict and overbearing and withholding parent. Okay, so move on to verse 4. We see another line in verse 4. The serpent says, if you eat of the tree, you will not surely die. Flat lie. And here, Satan, what he's doing here is he's minimizing the consequences of sin. Think about how many of us believe this. We think, if I sin, it'll be okay. It'll be fine. I won't die. There won't be consequences. Another lie. Then we go to verse 5. And Satan lies again for a third time. He says, Eve, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Here's the key word in verse 5. God knows. The servant is saying, Eve, God knows that if you eat of the tree, you'll be like him. And God doesn't want you to be like him because God is jealous of you. He's jealous of you. He's afraid of you. He's trying to put you down. He's holding out on you. That's why he doesn't want you to have the fruit. And so by telling all these lies, here's what Satan is doing. 
He is making God our rival. He is making it appear as if God is not for us, but against us. And as the pastor Tim Keller says, that is the one big lie. That is the one big lie of sin. God is not for you. He's not for you. He's not for you. He's against you. Every lie that sin tells, no matter its form, if you trace it back, it all goes back to that. God is not for me. And so sin convinces us that because God is not for us, if we're going to be happy and if we're going to live a fulfilled and happy life, we have to take matters into our own hands. And we've got to figure things out because God is not looking out for us. He doesn't care. He's not for me. That's the lie. God is not for me. God is against me. God is holding out on me. I must take matters into my own hands. God is not for me. God is not for me. God is not for me. Think about your life. Think about the sins you struggle with. We all have them. They're all different. At their core, they're all rooted in that lie that Satan whispers into our ears that God is not for us. He's not looking out for us. He doesn't want us to be happy. Sin is an invasive power that always lies. And makes us live for ourselves and not for God. So that's the third thing. Makes us live for ourselves and not for God. Um, the other day I saw this cartoon in the New Yorker magazine. And it pictured this imaginary game show. Okay, So it's this cartoon. And it's an imaginary game show. And the name of the game show is Make It All About You. And uh, there's this host. He's saying to these two contestants. Contestants, you have 30 seconds, 280 characters, and an unfamiliar topic. Can you find a way to make it all about you? And the answer, of course, is yes. We're pretty good at that. And y'all, really, like, this is what sin is. Sin is making everything about us. It's making everything about us. Everything comes back to us. Sin, we said this last semester, it's like this black hole. What do black holes do? They just suck everything into them. And that's what sin is. All about us. Circumstances, all about us. Life, all about us. People, all about us. All about me. Um, let's just go through a few examples of like how we know that sin is alive and well in our world. All right, Here's one. Um, have you ever heard of this thing that psychologists call the fundamental attribution error? Has anyone ever heard of this? The fundamental... Nate, thank you. All right, fundamental attribution error. Here's what it means. Psychologists say that as humans... We have this built-in tendency to attribute anything good that happens in our life to us and to our own efforts. But anything bad that happens in our life, we attribute to the faults of someone else, right? Okay, so think about it. If you make an A on a test, why is that? Because you studied really hard. But if you make a C on a test, why is that? It's because your teacher sucks and asks you a bunch of questions that weren't on the study guide, right? Like, this is always how it goes. Overinflating our own sense of rightness and ability, and, 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 and then always overinflating other people's faults and their failures. Fundamental attribution error. All about us. Or how about this? Have you ever found, like, when someone really just listens to you, that it's kind of shocking? Because no one really listens to one another anymore. I mean, so when you finally have the experience of someone, like, listening to you, it's, like, totally disorienting and disarming. Because no one does it. 
We just talk and talk and talk about ourselves and never listen to other people. Make it all about you. Or how about this? How about how we like one-up each other all the time? So like you share something hard with someone. Maybe you say, I'm just really overwhelmed right now. Um, I have two tests and a paper coming up and my dog died last week. And then someone else will be like, well, I have three tests and two papers and they'll start talking about like their hamster or something, right? I mean like people are always finding something about what we say and just turning it back to them. Make it all about you, make it all about you, make it all about you. And we see this in our passage. Because looking back at the passage, I want us to see and ask ourselves, what would it look like to live a life not for ourselves, but for God? I want us to imagine, what would it mean to live not for ourselves, but for God? And we can begin to see this actually at the very beginning of our text. Look down at it one more time. Look at God's one no. He only gives one no to Adam and Eve in the garden. Not a bunch of no's, one no. And here's his one no. Don't eat of the tree. I mean, why would God make that his one no? Uh, As Tim Keller says, it's kind of arbitrary. I mean, don't eat of a tree. Why would this be the one no and not just say, like, don't steal or, like, don't lie or don't be mean to people? But instead, don't eat of a tree. Well, well, here's why he does it. He, he does it uh, because basically what he's doing is, is he's creating this perfect test of obedience for Adam and Eve. And here's how. He's creating this scenario where Adam and Eve have absolutely nothing to gain by obeying this rule. By not eating of the tree, like, they don't have anything to gain. Like, it's pretty obvious to us, like, okay, I shouldn't tell a lie because I might get in trouble. Or I shouldn't cheat because I, won't, I might get in trouble. But don't eat of the tree. It's not obvious, like, why that would benefit your life in any way. And notice, God doesn't really give them a reason why they shouldn't be of the tree. He just says, don't eat of it. And so what God is doing here is he's creating this test to see if human beings can obey God just because he's God. Not because we have anything to gain, not because we can sort of reason how obedience would be helpful for us, but just because he's God. Here's how Keller puts it. God is saying to Adam and Eve, I want you to do something just because I said so. Not because it immediately benefits you or is practical or helpful or exciting. I want you to do something just because I'm God. I want you to live for me and not for yourself. I mean, again, anyone can follow the rules when it's obvious to us how following the rules will actually make our life better. But what about when it's not obvious and we can't see why we should do it? What about doing what God says just because he says it, even and especially when it won't offer us anything in return? That's true obedience. And friends, no one has ever done this except for one man, and that is Jesus. Because what did God ask Jesus to do? Die. God looked at Adam and Eve and said, don't eat of the tree. And they couldn't do it. God looked at Jesus and said, die on a tree. And he did it. Even though he didn't want to. Think about the night before Jesus died. He said to God, Father, please don't make me go to the cross. But if it is your will, I will do it. 
Jesus is the only man who would obey God just because he's God. And who would, would do what God asks, even if it meant death. And friends, because he does it on the cross, three amazing things happen. Here's what happens. First, on the cross, Jesus defeats the invasive power. Satan throws everything he has at Jesus, and Jesus wins. But then second, on the cross, Jesus shows us once and for all that sin is a lie. That's second part. Because Jesus shows us once and for all that God is for us. If you look at the cross, you can no longer doubt that God is for you. Because he sent his own stuff to die for you. But then third, third thing about sin. We always live for ourselves and not for God. Jesus, because he lives for God and not himself, here's what happens on the cross. All of his perfect and true obedience gets transferred on to us. How does it happen? It's a mystery, but it does. So again, you cannot understand Jesus and you cannot understand Christianity without the cross. Invasive power, excuse me, without sin. Invasive power, Jesus defeats it. The lie of sin, Jesus exposes it as a lie. And then again, the selfish, self-centered tendency that we have, Jesus reverses it. So for the first time, if we are in Christ, we can actually live for him and not for ourselves. Okay, so um, we said earlier that for two weeks now, we've been talking about this man, Vladimir Putin, right? And that's like, that's like all we've been talking about. But Putin actually isn't the only man we've been talking about, right? I mean, we've also been talking about this man named Zelensky. And this Zelensky dude is amazing. Like a month ago, like no one knew who this guy is, okay? Do you all know who this guy is? He's the president of Ukraine, Okay. So he's like 43 years old. He was totally obscure. He's, you know, the president of an Eastern European country. And now he's kind of become this hero across the world and this inspiration not only to the Ukrainian people, but actually to the whole world because he has refused to flee the Ukraine. And he's just said, I'm going to stay and I'm going to fight with my people. Uh, in fact, there was this amazing quote a couple weeks ago where the United States reportedly offered to help him evacuate the country. And what did he say? He said, the fight is here. I need ammo, not a ride. He's amazing. But together, these two men, Putin on the one hand, and then this guy Zelensky on the other, they actually show us the two paths or two ways to live. Because on the one hand, we have Putin, and he is this amazing illustration of humanity under the power of sin. That when we are taken over by sin, like we become incredibly selfish and evil and corrupt and egotistical. And let's be very clear, like with enough power, money, opportunity, we would be just like him. But then on the other hand, you have this man Zelensky, and he's a picture of us under the power of the gospel and under the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That under that power, we can actually begin to defeat sin and to live for others and not for ourselves. I mean, that we too can sort of stare sin and evil in the face and say, the fight is here and I'm not going anywhere and I'm going to fight. But I mean, how does this happen? How do we begin to fight sin? I mean, because all of us have like some sin that keeps us up at night that we wish was not a part of our life and that we would like to fight. So how do we begin to fight it? Uh, Stranger Things. Huge show for a number of years. Is there going to be a season four? 
Do we know? Yes. Okay, hopefully soon. Anyway, season three came out a few years ago. You remember in season three, you have Billy, who's the hot lifeguard, right? And uh, season three, things do not go well for Billy, okay? If you remember, quick recap, things do not go great for Billy in season three. In season three, here's what happens to Billy. First of all, the shadow monster uh, invades his body. Not a great start. And so this evil being from another world invades his body and takes him over. And it makes him do all these outrageous things, uh, like take extremely cold showers, right, um, to like try and like cool off from the heat of the shadow monster inside of him. He, uh, Billy like goes around like knocking people unconscious and like dragging them through the streets. Uh, he even repeatedly attacks his own sister and all of her friends. Like things do not go great for Billy. And you'll remember that in the last episode of season three, there's this showdown that takes place at the mall, right? And on the one hand, you have all of the teenagers, Eleven and all of her sort of posse, and then you have the shadow monster and all of his posse, including Billy. And Billy begins to again attack his sister and to attack Eleven, who's the main character of the show. And he's about to kill her when suddenly Eleven says the words, seven feet. She says, seven feet. You told her the wave was seven feet. And what is happening is that Eleven is reminding Billy of a time long ago when he was a little boy and his mom had taken him surfing. And there's this beautiful scene. Eleven continues. She says, seven feet. The wave was seven feet. And you ran to your mom on the beach. And there were seagulls. And she wore a hat with a blue ribbon and a long dress with a blue and red flower and yellow sandals covered in sand. And she was pretty. She was really pretty. And you were happy. And in that moment, this amazing thing happens where suddenly Billy snaps out of it and he sort of wakes up. And the darkness of the shadow monster begins to leave him and this invasive power no longer has a hold on him. And then Billy ends up actually going over to the other team and fighting for the other side against the Shadow Monster in order to save his sister and her friends. And friends, what this shows us is that sin is an invasive power that takes over our bodies, and it can only be driven out by love. I mean, it can only be driven out by remembering the love of Jesus long ago. When you remember Jesus' love and you remember his goodness and his beauty, slowly but surely, the shadow monster will be driven out of you. It will take a long time, but it can happen. And that's the hope of the gospel. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, it's not fun to talk about sin, but it's in your scriptures and it's everywhere in your scriptures, so we got to do it. So thank you for this passage tonight that reminds us that we have this thing that we have to deal with throughout our lives, and yet it is not as powerful as you. And so we do ask that, I ask for myself and my friends here, that you would continue to drive out sin from us, that you would send the power of your Holy Spirit to change us, and to remind us of your goodness and beauty, uh, that we might more and more live not for ourselves, but for you and for one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.